Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Afmal Hotra, and yes, of course, I'm back on Straight Talk. And um, today, like every episode, I have not one, but two fantastic guests. So great value for money for all of you. And the, the topic today is quite serious, although we do have a lot of fun when we do these shows. It's a serious topic. And it's to do with my love and passion for diversity, inclusion, and equity, and, and everything related to it. And you've heard me talk about this, you know, emphatically with passion, with a lot of uh, commitment towards trying to make change happen. So this is not just <clears throat> an intellectual debate. This is us trying to do something to move the needle, to make some sort of a dent uh, on the planet. And I have two incredible guests. I have Tina Opie. Um, welcome, Tina. How are you doing? I am doing great. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, real pleasure. I have so much to ask you. And we have Beth <laughs> Livingston. Um, who who are and Beth, how are you doing? Good to, good to have you on the show. I'm great. Yeah, thanks. Excellent. Um, we are going to talk about a lot of things. Of course, we are going to talk about your book, um, Shared Sisterhood. Uh, I have a copy, and I would recommend sales plug uh, that anyone who sees this should go and buy the copy. Uh, buy a copy of this book. It's on Amazon and all the usual uh, retailers. And I've started reading it and I had so many questions. So when I read, I struggle to read a whole book end to end. Um, and I like to read and I stop and I pause and then I think about it. And then I come back to it some other point. I feel I absorb better and I recall better. So I'm recalling a lot of what you've written in the book. So you'll be very happy, <laughs> proud of me. So before I start, you're, you're both professors at two very prestigious universities. Uh, Beth, you at the University of Iowa, the the, the Tippy College of uh, Business, and uh, Tina, you're a professor at Babson College, and you're both studying business and management, and now you've brought your brains together and your experiences together to produce this magnificent piece of literature and discourse. So um, I'm going to first ask you why you decided to collaborate, and firstly, how did you meet? Why you decided to collaborate? And you're, you're both different from a diversity standpoint. And so you're both women, I get that, uh, but different racial backgrounds. So what's the story? What got you together? Are you childhood friends or something? Or was it all cold <laughs> and one of you worked on the other one? Uh, how did it all happen? Yeah, so- How did we meet? <laughs> yeah, so we met, so uh, we, I had just given a paper at, what's called the Academy of Management, which is the major convening body for management strategy, et cetera, et cetera, for faculty as well as doctoral students come off the stage. And there was a queue of people with questions and, and Beth came up to me and she said this, not me. She skipped up to me excitedly and she introduced herself and extended her hand and I sort of backed up and I was like, security, you know, <laughs> I didn't know if I could, uh, should trust her or not. And, and, you know, I, we, we were, I was friendly, but I didn't know who Beth was. And, uh, unfortunately up to that point, you know, I, like I said, didn't know if I could trust Beth and Beth was a white woman. And that's what I saw when I came towards me. And unfortunately, like in that point, I had been a banker, a consultant, and now an academic. And I had been harmed by white women in those contexts. I had been betrayed. And so I didn't know what Beth wanted from me, honestly. And we talked. I later found out that we knew a person in common. I let my walls down a little bit. We started having conversations. 
we realized we were both moms. We were both academics, obviously. We both love 90s hip hop. We both like to dance. Nice. We started, you know, vibing a little bit. And then we found out that we had some differences. Um, I'm, I describe myself as a Black Christian woman. Beth described herself as a white atheist woman. We, we, we had bonded on some of our similarities. We started to really explore some of our differences. Beth, do you want to take it over from there? Yeah, you know, I think... What was interesting is when Tina says I skipped up, there probably there might actually have been literal skipping because that's just, you know, I'm kind of puppyish. I can't help it. That's just I'm I'm a ball of energy. Um, but I hadn't actually thought at that point about how that might come across and about yeah. what what Tina's experiences are. And it's not that I didn't know. I knew, right, that that being a black woman in academia was a particular challenge because I knew black women in academia and, and understood what, what they'd gone through. And I just was thinking about that. And I think one of the, the main things that I, when I, I think about that initial point where we met was that I, I entered into that just expecting she would just trust me from the jump. Like, why wouldn't she like, why would we would start from that point? And I think that was such an important learning experience for me. Like, why should I expect to be trusted? Like, why should that be the baseline? Right. Why shouldn't I have to you know, demonstrate my trustworthiness to get to that point. And that it's not an affront to me to have to do that. That's not an unreasonable thing for someone to ask. And uh, building our relationship on that allowed us to learn how to agree and disagree, which is really laid the groundwork for why we were able to come together and write shared sisterhood. You know, Tina had a really brilliant idea about why women, particularly black and white women in the United States, weren't making the progress that we had hoped to make, right? We're, we supposedly all care about women's equity, what's happening there. And she had some great ideas. And after she shared them with me, I was like, I'm all in, you know, how can we continue to work on this together? And because we had laid the groundwork of having these conversations, we were able to agree and disagree. We were able to push each other. And I think it's that extension of grace with one another. It's that, you know, trust that we had built that allowed mm. us to, to write the book that we did. Mm. Quick question. So I get, I get Tina's perspective to, to some extent where she was a little bit reticent and like, who's this? Uh, it's a very important point I'm making here, but your, what was going on in your mind when you approached her? Well, why did, and I get why you approached her. I, I, I get the, the logic, but how, how did you find, I was trying to figure out how the confidence and the comfort level and the self-belief mm-hmm. and just you just had something in your head you're like I've got to go meet her uh, by the way that is in itself uh, quite interesting to, to to observe because I can tell you that people who um, who don't who are confident and, and you know have accolades and, and credibility and so on and so forth but come from a marginalized community may not have that um, either wherewithal or um, you know just deep levels of self-esteem to go and do that so what what was going on in your head why why did you do why are you going to approach her well sorry yeah it's normative in our field but Beth go ahead I'm sorry yeah yeah yeah. no it's it's a common thing that has so first of all the, the social context laid a groundwork where it was common for people to queue up after a talk right right so okay. th- so that helped some right in that but I also I I also, so in academia and in management, we talk about personality a lot. Like what are, what are the roles (laughs) of personality and traits? And, and we talk about something called the big five, which is about like extroversion, openness, you know, neuroticism, emotional stability, conscientiousness, um, agreeableness. And I'm a very extreme on almost all of those things. I'm very, I'm 
over extroverted, like Tina's laughing because she knows I'm over extroverted. I'm, you know, I don't have high anxiety. So I probably wasn't thinking about any of that, right. Mm. No matter what I tend to be just, I, I, I get really excited about talking to new people. Her talk was excellent. And I, like she said, I knew that I knew people who knew her. So I was like, Oh, I have to talk to her. I have to get to know her. She's great. Mm -hmm. She seems, she seems wonderful. And I wasn't thinking about how I would come across to her. Right. Mm -hmm. And part of that was probably my privilege. I didn't have to think about that in the same way. It was mostly women. I think it was probably mostly women in the room at that point in time in the group that we were in. So my womanhood wasn't as salient as perhaps it is in certain contexts where I might not have felt as comfortable if I was going up to a group of men, you know, in that way. Um, But I think it, you know, it was my exuberance and excitement to talk to her, but making sure that she knew that was authentic, that it wasn't, you know, I'm trying to, you know, I want to manipulate you or why I I'm thinking about how this benefits me, but truly a genuine interest in her that it was on me to communicate that. Right. And, you know, in that first meeting, I didn't do that very well. I was excited. And I thought, well, surely she'll know that I'm genuine here, but of course, why would she? And I think that was, was important. You talked about in one of your um, shows, you talked about this um, concept of trust. And I just want to unpack this for a moment. You talk about this approach, which I feel is deeply interconnected because they don't operate in, in you know, silos, right? So you, you talk about vulnerability, being vulnerable. You talk about this concept of trust, which is super hard, very mm-hmm. complex, and has, has uh, it can be built and it can be broken quite quickly. And who knows yeah. how? We're all trying to figure this out empathy and risk-taking. So uh, these are very important uh, aspects of any relationship, actually, if you think about it, for the the longevity of a relationship. How does this play out in the work you've put together in the book? Because I think it's a fundamental part of your book. So either of you, Beth or Tina, if you'd like to just give some more color. Yeah, I mean, I think um, before I answer that question, I think it's important to go back to to contextualize the answer to that question. Yeah. Undergirding the conversation that Beth and I are having about how we met is this discussion about the notion of power. Because when Beth walked up to me as a white woman and I responded as a black woman, the the idea of power is people, you know, whether or not you have access to and control over resources. Mm -hmm. And in the academy, black people are significantly underrepresented. Black women are even more so. If you look at the people who have tenure, if you look at people who have associate professorships, full professors, endowed chairs, et cetera, it's almost non-existent. And so there is a level of of privilege, as Beth mentioned. And so in the field of the academy and then in society at large, Black people have been historically marginalized. Women is another group that has been historically marginalized. Uh, Our dominant groups around the world typically have been people who are men, white people, people from upper caste. If we're gonna talk about India, Mm. Brahmins, for example, those are power dominant groups, right? Mm. And so when we go to now to your question, when you're looking at vulnerability, risk-taking, empathy, and trust, Depending upon if you're interacting with someone and if you're from a historically marginalized or a historically power dominant group, when Beth and I interfaced, it was challenging for me to trust her. Beth needed to empathize with that. So if you recall what Beth said, when she first approached me, she assumed trust. 
But then when she recognized that I might not have reciprocated that trust, rather than getting defensive, she paused and said, you know what? I can empathize with Tina because I, I have done some work and I might try to empathy. Empathy is about emotions. The technical, there's a difference between empathy and perspective taking. For the sake of the book, we have sort of combined them to be about the emotion as well as the cognitive or the perspective taking stance. Mm. She tried to put her, she put herself in my shoes. She tried to experience what it was to be emotional, emotionally in my, in my shoes. And she slowed down and said, I can understand that. So let me try to take Tina's perspective and understand things from her, from her sense. So that is, it's really important to understand that depending upon where you're coming from, you may need to emphasize one of the, one or more of those four characteristics mm. at a different way. And then those things revolve. So I needed to, my trust may have been low for Beth. I had to make myself vulnerable to Beth and eventually say, you know, I didn't trust you initially. And then I had to take a risk. There were there was a moment where I had to say, or, or I had to make myself more and more vulnerable. And then Beth took some risks on my behalf publicly. Right. And then when she did that, that caused my trust to increase for her. I made myself more vulnerable to her. She empathized more. And then you can see that there's this mutually reinforcing cycle that is causing the bridge the authentic connection that's between us, it's layer upon layer is increasing. And, and what we talk about in the book is, if Beth had been unwilling to take a risk on my behalf, if she had been unwilling to be empathetic, if I had been unwilling to be, make myself vulnerable, you can see how any of those, the lack of any of those ingredients would have inhibited the formation of a solid bridge or connection between the two of us. Mm. So I hope that helps aft in explaining how you form a bridge between people who are coming from different backgrounds. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's a powerful approach because it can be pragmatic as well. You can actually do it. Like you describe it yeah. because you're, you're native to it, right? Because you created yeah. it. But actually, as I hear you, what, <clears throat> four words, they're four words in English. And this is another mm -hmm. thing I'm going to come to in a second because <laughs> nomenclature is very important in DEI because not everyone speaks English. I mean, it's a universal language, but different parts of the world have different terms for different things. Yeah. Uh, funny enough, racism plays itself out differently in different languages. Uh, so that's another thing. So, but there's one more thing that I, I'm going to go into the corporate world in a second. But again, just to take your example, you, you were keen, you were motivated for whatever reason. You were already wired. You're, you were already in um, top gear because you knew it was almost like, you know, you're on a mission. You were on a mission. Yeah, we shared values. We knew we shared values already. Yeah. In general. So, so that connection, do you, I mean, do you also believe, I mean, I'm sure you do. Do, do you believe in energy fields and frequencies? Because I do, I think it's not as, for me, relationships is not just about the, the logical. Right. Uh, of course, you talk oh, about yeah. the aspects. Yeah, there's energy between energy. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we might call it vibes. I, mean, I don't want to get into religion because, but you know, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in energy. I believe in vibing. I believe that I can, you know, my husband will laugh. There have been some situations where I'm like, mm -mm, I'm not feeling this person. Logically, it looks like we should partner with them. But when I went into the room and we sat down at the table, there was something off. I'm not cool mm -hmm. with this. Yeah. yeah. I can't explain it. 
call it intuition, whatever, and we have turned it down. And then later on found out something was up. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. We, we may call it different things, mm-hmm. but I absolutely believe in that for sure. Mm, great. So we're going we're gonna to move into the book a little bit more. And then um, the angle I'd like to take on the book is more pragmatic, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, because mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the big problems that needs to be solved, of course, is that you know, hundreds of millions of people are employed by corporations around the world, <clears throat> all over the world. And these corporations are run by people. And you know what the majority is, so we don't need to go into that. And uh, I don't think they've figured out how to do some of this stuff. Uh, well, actually, they haven't figured it out, right? Which is yeah, we know they they haven't they haven't figured it out. But. They haven't figured it out, and we're all trying. We're all trying our best, but they haven't figured it out. And uh, on my show, I was privileged to have have had many guests. And one of my guests was uh, has been doing this for forty years as part of her consultancy. And uh, she sort of said, you know, I said to her, she's she's a black woman in, in the states. I said. So 40 years you've been doing this. So do you think we've made progress? She said, honestly, and she works with LinkedIn and all these other companies and stuff. And she shot herself in the foot and she said, I know I'm doing it. She said, no, this is not where I thought I would be four decades later. You know, is it, is it better than 40 years ago? Yeah, of course. But is it where we should be? No. So there's a lot of work to be done, okay? At every level, whether it's any of those six groups that I talked about, you know, the gender, race, and so on and so forth, LGBTQ and so on and so forth. Um, the, the, the book and the, the approaches that you have in there, tell us how, if I, so let's put, let's draw an example. I'm a CEO of a listed company. I'm going to go state NASDAQ listed company. Let's say tech, just to, to give it context. And I'm trying to figure out how I can do DEI well. Okay. And I've done the normal things, tick box, cosmetic things. You know, I brought in a big consultancy. I've got, I did a feasibility study. I wrote a DEI strategy. I got someone to write it for me because it was easier. I hired a chief DNI officer who, who was a black woman. And she's about to leave because four out of 10 <laughs> are, uh, because she said, well, this is not what you promised me. And it's humiliating because I don't have a portfolio when I sit with my board members with the other C-level executives. So I'm going. Um, I set up these ERGs, these resource groups. I just set loads up. Not sure, not sure where they are and what they're doing. And, and actually, I'm lost now. So I actually don't even know if I'm doing DEI. Am I doing DEI? I'm not quite sure. Now, that's, that's a classic, yeah. almost normal distribution right now, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. There are many in there. What, what, what will you say to that CEO? I'm the CEO. What, what are you going to say to me? I mean, with, with this, with the findings of this. You know, I, I'll start. And then I would love to hear Tina's thoughts on this too. You know, I think about that a lot and we talk in one thing, one thing we talk about in the book is think about who you're talking to and that there are 20% of people who are on, in, on board with you. We are, we are in line. We believe the same things. We're on the same train. We are, we're gung ho going. There's 20%. You're never going to convince, right. No matter what you do. And then there's those 60% in the middle. And I would say a lot of those leaders are in that 60% where they generally, many of them would generally say, I believe in equity. This is important. I would say that and, and are willing to take some, I would say, calculated and measured risks. I'm going to write a strategy when there wasn't one before. I'm going to hire someone that perhaps my predecessors wouldn't hire. Um, But one of the things that we think is a, is a missing link between what's in people's hearts right? Oh, I, 
I am not prejudiced. I believe in these things and the actions that we see at the organization. Well, what, what are these outputs? What are the systems? What do the systems actually look like? Are these connections? And I would wonder, well, what sort of, like, are you, are you having a connection with people who are different? Are you listening, right? Listening more than you talk because that CEO, regardless of what groups he or she often he is a part of, um, they have positional power that they're going to be the most powerful person in the room every time they walk in, right? Which means you're going to be listening, uh, hopefully a lot more than they're talking, which is one of the things we talk about in the book. And I think that oftentimes what you see is that the values are reflected in who you listen to, who you build these connections with. And I often see CEOs who have really strong connections with their CFOs, their CTOs, mm. right? Mm. Like you, you're you talking at all hours of the day and night, you're being honest. These are my fears about what we're doing. These are my fears about what our competition is doing. You know, you're talking really honestly about, you know, the IPO that you're like, you're having really honest conversations about your fears. You're being very vulnerable in those reactions. But rarely do I see those same sort of, sort of vulnerable conversations with your chief diversity officer. I'm I'm afraid of making this mistake. I am uncertain about this. I am right. Like you don't see that sort of what we would call dig work that really delving into yeah. those concerns that you have and those building of real authentic connections. And so, of course, the person you've put in charge of diversity feels on the outside because you've placed them out there. Right. So it's even more than just the resources that you haven't provided. It's the fact that you have an inner circle where you are, you know, sharing these things that are important to you. And she often, you know, she or he is not a part of that because, you know, it's reflected in those actions. And so I think that sort of awareness is the first thing that I would say, which is how, what are those conversations looking like and how are your actions reflecting what your priorities are in ways you perhaps may not have intended, Tina. Mm -hmm. And I know there's so much more Tina yeah, has to course. say yeah, about. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go back to it, yeah. Yeah, and so racism is, is a cancer. It is a diseased way of thinking. Right. And too often we think that policies and procedures, formal policies and procedures are sufficient to prevent that from happening. So. At the, at the beginning of our conversation, we talked a little about, you know, Beth and I are based in the United States. That is why the book is written from a U.S. context. If I look at the Civil Rights Act, the reason why that legislation was so important is because legally we wanted to prevent in the United States organizations from using categories like race, gender, national origin, um, from legally religion. using those categories to discriminate. What else, Beth? I said religion. Age, I said, yeah, religion, religion, et cetera, other, and, and other categories. So where Shared Sisterhood comes in is we have these legal categories, but legislation does not address the value system, the hearts and minds of those people who are still in those positions. So the law may be enacted the policies and procedures may be enacted, but the reason why so many organizations simply have checklists is because they don't really care. They do not, and I know we have the 20-60-20 rule. There are many people who are in the movable middle. I believe that, we talk about that. The challenge is it is still an us versus them mentality. When they see Black Lives Matter or when they see George Floyd being murdered or when they see that 
Black people are being fired or DEI people are, are being fired or we have SVB Bank and people are saying the reason why they folded <laughs> is because they, they hired one Black person on their officer. board. They have one person on their board and they didn't have a risk manager. That is, I mean, that's that's a yeah. divisive rhetoric that's intentionally designed to appeal to a certain mentality, but that is designed to appeal to an us versus them mentality. As long as we view DEI as being about Black people or women or gay people and not about all of us, mm. that cancer continues to go through the body. Mm. It continues. So for me, uh, to answer your question, share, we, the, when, I, when, when we do this work, when I do this work, we must get at that cancer, which is the way that people think about race, for example. And let's globalize it. Mm. How do people think about caste? Mm. I, when, when I teach MBA students, inevitably, when I ask if we have a conversation about race, people always say, this is not global. This is a US specific issue. And then I do this exercise. It's called a type of like exercise. I say, get into groups of people who are like you. And they say, well, Professor Opie, give us more detail. And I don't. Just say, get into, I'm not, giving, I'm not here. So what do you think happens? Do you have any predictions off? Do, uh, do you have well, well, the matching hypothesis, I mean, they go to, men might go to men, women might go to women. That's one. Race, they might go to people from racial backgrounds. Uh, and yeah, the, the belonging comes from, the affinity comes from looking at someone and saying, you look a little bit, you must be from India. You must be from here. You must be. Bang, I, I, I think, I don't know. That's exactly what happens. So, so you have down to color, almost down to caste. Mm. But people, I didn't tell them to do that, but it's a US thing. Hello, why do Brahmins go with Brahmins? Why? So, so it is, this, is, this is a natural heuristic that human beings do. And so the reason why I do not give a lot of instruction is because if I did, they would say that I had showed my hand and I had enforced my own belief system and value system on it. But you let it be revealed. It's human categorization. That's what we do. We categorize red flowers, blue flowers. We do that. And the challenge, that's not necessarily wrong to categorize things. The problem is the valuation that we put. Correct. on the different categories. Yeah. So we must dig into how we value the, we must first dig into the categories because we now have people who are saying, we can't even talk about those categories. Why are we gonna talk about those categories? Nope, we can't talk about categories. We, nope, no categories. Mm. No, 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 we can't talk about the history of categories. Oh my God, now we for sure can't talk about how we value the categories. Oh, no, 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 no. We can't talk about that. Because if we do that, the people who are maybe valued most highly are going to feel bad about it. Right. Oh, no. Now the people who are at the bottom are going to feel bad. So we must absolutely talk about this. All right. And we need the people who are running these. And you said you said we don't have to get into it. I think I don't know if you're talking about white men. We need to, I think, explicate that because around the globe, that is becoming controversial to say. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's what you mean. Oh, no, totally. I mean, I, I, I say it all the time. Uh, I'm not having a go at white men or men, uh, but it's it's a it's a reality. It's a fact. You have to. It it's is. A fact. It's the truth. It's a fact, which is different than an opinion. It is not an opinion that white men. I, I was at speaking at a global bank. 
I won't name the bank. It was a client though. And they called themselves a global international bank. And all I did was put up their org chart. Yeah. <laughs> real global, real <laughs> international, With right? pictures. And I said, you mean to tell me that you're in 180 countries around the world or however many countries it was, and 95% of your executives are white men? From so the US, probably mostly. Around, no, no, no. They were your, they were internet. They were from. There, there were they, they were, okay, so they did. They, they were Western. They were Western. Western European. There you go. Yeah. Western European and from the United States. But, but so, so that's the best. So this is a meritocracy. Hmm. I just think we must contend with that. Why is it that when you go to the recruiting process, your evaluation system leads you to 95% European white male, not even white women. Hmm. That is what we must contend with. And this is not a US issue. No, the no, it's a, it's a problem. Yeah, the principles in shared sisterhood hmm. are applicable. So they are, Beth and I believe and have found that we have gone, we have used our own case study, the relationship between her and I to go really deep but the principles are broadly applicable. But what I'm gonna do, you said you're gonna push us, I'm gonna push you. If you are in the UK and you are of Indian descent, is that accurate? I'm gonna push you to apply shared sisterhood to your context. That's not my calling. I'm not from India. That's on you, Af. You have the network, You you understand the culture, you apply the masala to India and share sisterhood, because that is your context. I'm applying it to the soul food and the collard greens in mm. the United States. Mm. 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 Yeah, beautiful. So you're right. And again, that takes, you know, we're three of us on this call today are doing it. We need many more because we are, we are, minor, we are minority, let's be honest, but we need many more, but it's happening slowly. We're getting there. Yeah. Um, there is, there's another element around this, which is you talked about, um, human human behaviors it's quite important and i made a couple of notes when i was thinking about this discussion um i'll share a quick story with you and of course this is a connect that i'm going to make after this call uh, for both of you so one of my early guests was a great a great person a great leader uh, darcy winslow i don't know if you know darcy darcy mm-hmm. winslow if you remember before women had uh, apparel and trainers um that were for women uh, it was believed by white men in these companies like nike and she was actually the, the first head of Nike's women apparel business and everyone else followed day after, um, that a woman's shoe should be a smaller man's shoe and pink. And yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, and yeah, you're win- yeah. And you're winning. And she came in and said, screw this. And of course, the rest is history. She was actually a character, not her husband. You know, not she wasn't acting in the movie, but remember that movie "What Women Want" with Mel Gibson. Oh yeah. When he yeah. Oh, she was the, she was the the basics for it. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. right, right. Uh-huh, she was uh-huh. the basis for it exactly. Now, why I'm mentioning that is because Darcy's amazing. She's doing some fantastic not-for-profit work. I will connect you with her for sure after this call. That'd be great. Now, she narrated a story to me on our last call, right? And she and it was it was almost like when I was watching your your stuff on YouTube, I was like, oh my god. So she said. And this is her problem. Listen to this, right? She said, you know, we're all of these, we're, we're, me and my friends, okay? She's white, she's a white woman and, she, and successful and, you know, moved on doing not-for-profit work and stuff. And she said, so I have this friend of mine, she's black. 
And we decided that women, all of us need to collaborate to do good for society, whatever it was, they're, they've got this mission that they're on. And they all got together, in a, they got together in a room. So there were some black women, there's some white women, just keep it at that for now, okay? Relatively privileged, both, both, both relatively privileged. Anyway, this conversation's going on and she's having good conversations and stuff. And she's like, it was a fantastic, it was a dinner, fantastic dinner. She said, until my friend calls me up, who's black, her, her best mate calls her up and says, that was a car crash. She's like, what? How was that a car crash? It was fantastic. Everyone shared their opinions. You know, we, we were on it. And the feedback was that, of course, the, the white women took everything for granted and did not mm. understand the journey of the black woman. Mm. And in fact, they, again, this is, I don't know if it's fixed, but then they had to run separate calls. And she became a mediator for her white women team and her mate became the mediator for the black women team. And finally, slowly through a really painful conversation, which is like, look, you made me feel like this, but why would you say that about me? And this was going on. Right. And so I guess my, my question to you both is this is not going to be easy, is it? I mean, you're you're going to upset people. This can't be some harmonious you know, process where we're all loving and hugging each other, you know, on LSD. This you're going to upset some people along the way. Yeah. 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 I, it's so I think that's one like. So I find this funny because, yes. Anything worth doing is going to take effort and it's hard work to do. And I think I, I find this funny because we often say, well, if the end result is happy and good, then the process yeah. should be happy and good. But for nothing else in our life, do we say that? right? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. exercise. No, we know mm-hmm. it's going to be hard, right? If, if you're building a business, you know, you're going to be working so oh, yeah. hard and so oh, yeah. long, and you're hoping that you get to a point where you can sell it, but you know, we know it's going to, it's going to suck for, mm-hmm. for a lid. But when it comes to, well, we want to do equity. Well, okay. But only if I don't have to work very hard. Well, I mean, then do you really value it? Because the things that we value, we put our effort into, we, we prioritize in that sort of way. And so I think about that in you know, it, I I find it funny when we prioritize people's comfort in general, but particularly Mm -hmm. people's comfort who, uh, you know, are from historically power dominant groups, Mm -hmm. because in the way in which we say we value equality, you're not valuing equality in that moment, because you are prioritizing one person's comfort over another person's freedom slash justice platform slash equity. And so it becomes these, every choice that you make reflects the values that you have. For me, that work is valuable, even when it's hard, because I, because I I know that I value the end and I want to get there and I'm willing to do the work to get there. Mm. And when you admit to yourself that there are things that you are not willing to feel, there are things that you are not willing to do. There's work you're not willing to do. I think in our book, we would say, well, be honest with yourself about those things and use it to reflect and reveal what your true values are. Use it to grow. Use it to say, oh, like if, I, if I'm if i saying, oh, I am not willing to get up at 6 a.m. to go exercise at this point in time, and I'm honest with myself about that, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. revealing something about what my values truly are, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's a very simplistic example. But if you use that for self-awareness and self-growth, then you're doing the dig work, we say. Then you're getting closer to actually being able to do the things you say you value. But we're not very honest with ourselves, particularly mm-hmm. around this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we protect our own image. We protect our own you know, sense of, of self 
worth and where's the growth in that, right? Mm. And Can I ask I you think- a quick question? I don't want to interrupt your flow because it just hit me. Sorry, who decided and who decides you've done enough digging then? Ah, that is, what a great question. Um, Tina, do you want to jump in there? Do you want me to, want me to do that one? Well, so this, this, what, when you ask that question, I would I say thought, I, you never have done enough digging, but go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I think that digging is never over, but it reminds me of the way that we talk about the difference between an ally and an accomplice and a co-conspirator. So yes. an ally is, is someone who believes in equity and theory you know, they, those are the people who went out and they may buy shared sisterhood or they may put a black square. They posted a black square when George Floyd was murdered and Blackout Tuesday. But mm, they're not going to march. They're not going to mm. say anything to their boss. They're not going to speak up in a meeting because they're not going to take a risk. Then you have an accomplice. And this is someone who believes in equity and theory also. And they may take a risk, but it's going to be a self-determined risk. It's a, right. So this might be someone who says, you know what, women, you guys should be protesting. I think all women should strike. I'm going to tell the supervisor that you guys are going to strike. Okay. Because that's what they've determined is what women should do. Now, the women may say, look, no, we don't want to strike. But the, per- the accomplice has determined that that's what's necessary. The co-conspirator is the person who believes in equity and is willing to take a risk, but is also subordinated what they think the risk should be to the voices of the people they're ostensibly helping. They listen to the voices of the historically marginalized person. You do not get to label yourself an ally, an accomplice, or a co-conspirator. The people you are helping determine what that is. Now, that can be that can be complicated, right? Yes. Because some people yeah. may think you're a co-conspirator. Some people may say you're an accomplice and you have to deal with that. So for me, dig is never over, but, and I do think there are some moments where you know that you need to dig. And that's what I, how I was gonna answer. There have been times where I've said, Beth, time out. I, I, I have to tap out. I need to go. I need you, first of all, to handle this. If we're bridging, mm-hmm. I, I need you to handle. There have been some white women I've said, Beth, I need you to, I need to tap out. You need to handle her. And there have been some black women where Beth has said, can you, I think it's better if you bridge with her mm-hmm. um, because I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle this. We've had to swap off. Mm-hmm. And then I, we both had to reflect and, 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 you know, there've been other situations as well. Um, so that's a long answer to your question. Beth, were you about to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, thinking back to your story off about, about Darcy, like mm. my my guess is, is one of those things is that group of white women were feeling very much like accomplices and allies. We are here, we are doing this. Yeah, yeah. But but the group of black women were feeling like their voices weren't centered, their needs were not elevated. And so they weren't feeling that co-conspirator that, which we would kind of say is that deepest level of trust. Like, oh, you're going to center my needs, my concerns, and you've done the work to figure out what those are. Mm-hmm. And I feel comfortable sharing them with you. I know you're going to stand next to me, not in front of me, right? Unless I ask you to stand in front of me to take whatever hit needs to be taken, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think about it that way, that there are there are those moments where people, and I also think we we live in a culture where there's a lot of, um, I want to be seen as an ally and it's really important to me that right. you see yeah. me this way. And it's yeah. really important to me, like, and you've built your image around that. And I think what Tina says is super important to remember, which is it's never my place. I never stand up and be like, hey, you can trust me, black people, right? Like yeah. what? <laughs> right? Like, because that's the first image to be like, well, no, perhaps I cannot. And I think yeah. that we we see too many of that conversation where I want you to know I'm a safe person. Yeah. 
without that thinking about, it's actually about the relationship that gets us to that. And I think we can also carry that up a level of analysis. Many organizations and corporations want to convey that. Mm-hmm. Black people, I'm safe for you to shop. I'm safe for you to work here. I'm safe. Look at this. We just were for- featured in this organization that listed us as a top place for Black people to work. Mm-hmm. And then I've always said, maybe you can do this with your AI. Mm-hmm. There needs to be a Zagat-like rating place based on employee feedback, Bingo. not yep. HR. Yep. I have never been able to figure Figure out. I know Glassdoor, that seems more to be for disgruntled employees. Um, <laughs> yeah, we I need mean, a better I'm, sampling I'm, system of that yeah, information. It's not a random sample. It's not a random sample at all. It's just like uh rate my professors. It's like those are the angry Yeah, no, please don't read my rate my professors. Please. I know I'm like so angry. Well, I have some good ones on there. Then there's like yeah. worst professor ever. I have um, to look at her face all day. Like exactly. Yeah. She talks about race too much, and I was like, and I will continue. But so <laughs> I think uh, going, go, and so I wanted to make that point, but also yeah. going back to the question about uh, the, the conversation about when do you finish digging? I, I do think I want to say that I think when we talk about historically power dominant and historically marginalized people, there is a level of assumed familiarity that is we, we must address yeah. um, in that story that you told us about Darcy. I imagine that those black women mm. felt like those white women acted as though they were super familiar with them and maybe they needed to listen more than they talked. And, and sometimes we can enter, we, Beth and I say this all the time, we're not entering these conversations at the same place. Often, if you're from a historically marginalized group, you've learned a lot about the power dominant culture because you've had to, to survive, just to live. But the historically power dominant group has not had to learn that much because their their culture is normative. And so when you go into a conversation and you're you're acting as though you're equal, which of course, from a human perspective, we're both valued, we value, but in terms of building a relationship, maybe you need to listen more. The other thing is, is you're listening to form the relationship. But if you're trying to understand societal, systemic, cultural norms, don't look to me to educate you. You yeah. also need to do your homework yeah. as well. So there's there's so many layers of nuance that can be challenging as well. Yeah, I want to bring a dimension in because uh, I want to make sure I tackle objections that people have who are doing their digging and don't start scapegoating on a certain social constructs and scenarios that happen within a marginalized community. So let me draw this example, which I think you'll relate to. And it's it's a real example. I have many stories, but I'll give you one, which is to do with um, uh, an an individual, a senior leader in an organization who actually I spoke to three days ago. And uh, he turned around and says to me, he's black, turned around and says to me, we were chatting about stuff. And I was saying to him, look, compared to Asians and black people, black people have suffered way more. Like, uh, it's tough for me, but you're like, I'm one step back at the bottom of the field honestly. And, you know, I've seen that through my work, my research. It's not comparable. I'm not saying one group gets it worse than the other, but I, you just have to accept and acknowledge that history. And if you study history, you'd figure out how certain communities have suffered a lot more and continue to suffer, not just in America, but all over the world. And uh, I was talking about, uh, he was talking about how he integrated into society. And he said, let me tell you something. I said, yeah, go on. He said, don't think that 
my community isn't racist within or isn't prejudiced within the, the realms of our microcosm, for example. So for, he, he was saying that um, his particular community, which is from one part of Africa, there is racism within that community. And actually when someone excels, and he talked about how, when he became a senior vice president, many were happy for him, but a lot of people put a lot of pressure on him in the community to say, oh, now you think you're better than us, right? And you know, you think you, uh, now you're going to tell us what to do and you mm-hmm. detach from what it, what it means to suffer. You, you're operating at, you know, like the white man's level, okay? Mm-hmm. Very mm-hmm. interesting. And I see that in Asian communities, I see that in other communities. How does one deal with that? Because of course, one is people who have studied this area will could use that as a scapegoating exercise to say you haven't you haven't sorted your shit out. You know how do you expect me to sort it out? Because there's infighting amongst your community. Um, but I wanted to figure out whether you a accept that point and you agree with it, or you think. Ex- you what is the point? What is? Give me a tagline of the point. I want to make sure I'm summarizing. Understanding. Yeah. So so my my point is when okay, let me give you the scenario. When someone of color gets promoted to a senior position, okay, a few things happen. One is their community themselves is not always inside the company or outside the company, always as supportive as we'd like them to be. Mm -hmm. Is that true? And do you see that happening? And how do we deal with it? B, uh, there's another dimension, which I'll now touch, which is I've seen, for example, a lot of recent CEOs of tech companies have come from an Indian background, Indian origin background. I've spoken to a lot Mm -hmm. of them. And they say to me, I'm like, wow, this is incredible. They're like, that's fine, Af, but what you don't realize is I'm under a lot of pressure because not only am I doing the CEO job, if I was white, I wouldn't have any other pressure apart from just being a great CEO. Now the community that I belong to like 1.4 billion Indians or something now expect me to like transform this yeah. organization and be the champion and flag bearer. So what I, there are two parts of this. One is, is there infighting? How do you deal with it? How, how do you address it? B, isn't it a little bit unfair that someone who's a person of color becomes a CEO? They've got it. It's, it's even harder than it was when you weren't the CEO or C-level executive because you've got all this pressure to deal with. Well, so it's interesting. So I think I see... So the first question, if an in-group member, an in-group member of a historically marginalized community, so a woman even, okay, if they succeed, are there sometimes other members of the in-group who are not supporters of that person? Yes. I mean, because no in-group is a monolith. So that can be for Black people, Asian people, women, LGBTQ people, tall people, short people. It's not endemic to any particular group. It's just human nature. Beth? And I just wanted to say one thing about this because there's some really interesting research uh, out about about women in that. And I want to bring this in because there's a, there's an interaction. We like to complicate things. There's an interaction there with the context. So some really interesting research about like, you know, you've heard the queen bee syndrome. Oh, women aren't always the best bosses. Well, there's actually research out that shows that when everyone knows only one woman's going to get ahead. Everyone knows there's no way Mm -hmm. that they're Mm going to hire five black senior vice presidents. Nope. Right. Right. Everybody knows it. Everybody sees it. Then you are creating a context where you are trying, or at least you're not trying to prevent that sort of in-group competition. Like everyone sees that. Okay, right. So if if Off is the only South Asian, you know, uh, executive here, they then everybody else knows. Well, it's we're not going to get promoted. 
Mm. right? Because they're not going to hire five of us because Mm -hmm. they never have Mm -hmm. and they never will. And I think it's really important that we don't divorce that from the context because we want to believe we, we people, we really want to believe in meritocracy. We really, really want to do believe in that. But I think you see some of that community situations because the context is creating it, right? Right. The context at least is not leaving it. Yeah. yeah. Because the issue is that's white supremacy. The reason why (laughs) the infighting is happening is because of racism. Scarce resources. There's scarce. So the the it's it's the scare the crabs in a barrel. Yeah. That's the that's the term that the whole reason why the crabs in a barrel pull each other down is because the crabs are in a barrel. Right. If the crabs were in the ocean, this wouldn't be happening. Correct. If the crabs were allowed to have ample opportunity and resources, I'm liking all these mixed metaphors we've got going you know, on. You know, I mean, but seriously, no. But the, yeah. but it's it's like it's it's not even mixed. It's like the barrel versus the ocean. Yeah. It's like if they were allowed to be what how they were supposed to be free and liberated, they would not be competing for the scarce resource. So I think the problem is the focus and the framing. Hmm. Yeah. So so you're gonna. It doesn't negate the feeling. Yeah, it doesn't negate the. the it, it doesn't negate the issue. Well, why was such and such and such allowed to work here? While I'm forced to work there, of course, that is a very natural issue. The second second part of your question um, in terms of when you have an individual, Barack Obama Mm -hmm. or or any, any person who is from a historically marginalized group, Indira, who, who, who so the, the 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 CEO of Pepsi, yeah, any person, yeah, yeah, they become yes, they become then um, the representative not just of themselves but for an entire collective. But that is again connected to what white supremacy and racism and sexism because white people <laughs> never become yeah the representative or the. The of white people. board of directors of SVB, we are not running around saying, oh my God, we cannot have there go white people again. 11 right? out of 12 board members being white men because now the organization is going to collapse. Yeah. Nobody is saying that. Yeah. In fact, what they are saying is if there's one black person on the board, we are distracted. Think about that. Mm. Yeah. Th- that is insane. It is insane. It is, we are literally, they are running an okie doke. Yeah. We, uh, we are being bamboozled. We are being hoodwinked. Go ahead, Beth. It comes back to the point that, it comes back to the point that people who are from, you know, some people are allowed to be themselves and be judged on their merits and they can be good leaders, bad leaders. They Mm. can be awful people, good people. Right. And some people are allowed that nuance, allowed that to be judged as an individual. Um, You know, we talked, Tina talked about the fact that it's not just what categories exist. It's the value that we put on those categories. And if you don't want to admit to yourself that you're valuing a category differently, and a yeah. lot of us don't want to admit that to ourselves, we can look at how, who we let be them be individuals and who we make representative of their groups and under what circumstances we do that. And they can be incredibly revealing. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. There was, uh, there, 
I know we're running out of time, but you know, we could we could sit and talk for hours, which we will one day when we meet face to face, not on Zoom calls. Uh, yes. Just final couple of things. You know, I've, I'm writing a paper right now on uh, the global faces of diversity. So I'm trying to figure out there are three dimensions I'm talking about: east, west, and digital. And I've started to figure out that these call them realities, right? That people behave differently in the physical versus virtual reality. We all know that, right? Of course, like mm -hmm. media, you're something else, right? When you're on social media, same as gaming, where you can fantasize about who you're not, you know, and uh, in reality, that is in physical reality. And there is a there is a risk that we run over the next decade or so, depending on whether the metaverse comes true or not, that the physical world and the physical uh, identity we have gets whitewashed and evaporated. And actually, the more time we spend in the metaverse, that becomes our new reality. Now, that could be a good thing or a bad thing. You know, if you're an awful racist in your physical world and you hate that about yourself, now you could be a ooh, ally, you know, you know, in, in the virtual world, whatever it may be. So who knows? Um, one thing I have discovered is that the East for me is about collectivism. Right. This is where every live, people living in big families, everyone uh, contributes at the same time. There's consistency. That's like high five, high five. We all do this together, together forever. You know, all that sort of, you know, win together and family structures, you know, in the East, for example, responsibilities, duties, contribution to life, society, work. It's all about collectivism. OK, now that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Like the church going to a religious facility, collectivism, belonging. Yes, we could do this together. Michael well, I'm going to interject. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I think you have to be careful saying it's good or bad. You're, okay. you're attaching yep. value to it. Because yep. I, I I, I'm from a collectivistic culture. It's a good thing. It's not a good thing when my relative shows up at the airport at 2 o'clock unannounced and I'm expected to go to the airport <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah, have yeah. a dinner cooked, have, <laughs> have a meal cooked at the house, and I'm supposed, I sleep on the floor so that my elderly aunt can have my bed when my back hurts. I'm just saying, I come from a collectivistic <laughs> culture and I'm from the West. So I'm, I'm just coming to the family, the family as a family, it's a family was, thing. I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, you're bang on. I was coming to that. That's the other face of it, which is of course, <laughs> the people who are in the collective believe it's fantastic. But the downside is as painful. What, that example is a good one. I have many myself, of course. But one example here is, you know, I was speaking to one of the leading um leading authors in India right now who's driving the LGBTQ movement, uh, Dr. Sharif Ranika, he's on his second book. Uh, it's a brilliant book, um, Queer Sapien. It's called Queer Sapien. Yeah. A brilliant, excellent book. And uh, we were chatting and, he, and I said, so he said, oh, we're talking about the East and the West and DEI and companies and LGBTQ and gender and race and stuff. And I said, so tell me about how you came out with this whole story was going on. And he said, let me tell you something. He said, collectivism or this community-based living is the biggest cancer, he called it, he said, for people like me, because mm -hmm. you live in individualism. Yeah. You, know, you live in, I feel really sad. I just don't feel right about this right now. He said, you guys can have these Zoom calls and conversations like that. He said, if I start to do that first, of course, I'm LG, you know, I'm a gay man. Secondly, the entire society, the structure around me, you know, at the macro, micro level, it just comes at me, attacks, like antibodies, attacks me. Because I, how dare you be different? Draw attention to yourself. How yeah. dare you do that? Because we all agreed this is, and so, yeah, you're right. That's the problem with collectivism versus individualism. But I, 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 I'll leave the conversation here because I think in short, there is so much work for us to do still 
many more books, hopefully, you're both going to write together or individually around mm-hmm. this. I think this is just, it is, it is really just the start, isn't it? Because yeah. Yeah. I think you force people to think differently. I think you, you I, I would say, I don't know how you do your coaching and mentoring and consulting. I mean, I know you're both academic um, professionals as well, but um, organizations need you with them. Because you see, one of the problems with these CEOs and C-level executives is that they forget quite quickly. So you go in and you're like, like, Tina, yeah, fantastic. Beth, got it. And then a month goes by and then some other nonsense comes in and they get busy and nothing really happens. You almost need to be permanent coaches. I mean, I can't believe believe there are no DEI. Can they afford to make us permanent coaches? Um, Well, they're increasing the budget to 16 billion from 8 billion. So I think there'll be some money left over. You should mandate that, really. Um, but honestly, jokes aside, you know, again, when I said who decides when you've done enough digging, you said, no, there's no enough digging. And but of course, you need external intervention there. You can't solve the problem yourself. You know, when I, my, I had problems with my startup at one point, and I relate to what you said about <laughs> it was hard work and I'm exiting my company. I needed to go outside to specialist to get my head sorted because I had burnouts multiple times and I was unwell physically because I couldn't take whatever was going on in the business. Right. Yeah. But you need to know that you need an external person to help you. I think I don't think CEOs honestly have a CHRO who is going to do what you've described. Do you? I don't think so. Well, HR (laughs) is not. HR is to protect the institution. Correct. HR is to maintain the status quo. Too often. I mean, HR, that role, in my mind, was largely created after the Civil Rights Act and the EEOC. That's oftentimes a lot of those roles. It was, it's not often created. I mean, and Beth teaches this, but in my mind, it's not often created to represent necessarily the best interests of the employee. Like if the employee has a sexual assault case against an, an, one of the, you know, it's not, they're not necessarily going to represent. There's a lot of variance in that. And it's unfortunate. Yeah. 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 I mean, I've just seen it where HR represents the institution, not necessarily the employee. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we, we, we should talk more about that because a lot of HR offices think otherwise who are like, well, no, and, and I can, yeah. And, and we should, let's put a pin in that. Cause I do yeah. have some, you know, I think there's, like I said, there's a lot of variants and there's unfortunate yeah. trends that the good CHROs got to get in front of. And yeah. I think that there's opportunities for that. And there's a lot of risks. Yeah. Can I yeah. make one suggestion? I, you could, you could probably do this because you're both so established in this game. I managed to speak to one disgruntled uh, chief diversity officer who's part of that statistic, 40% who have left, who shared these stories with me. Now that's sample of one, but you know, it's not as if I've got a sample of 5,000, you know, the, the, the total <laughs> sample. One is pretty good in the grand scheme of things. Anyway, yeah. she shared all the stuff with me. It would be amazing if you could do some sort of a secret study or whatever, open study, and actually interview these individuals. If they want to be, you know, anonymous, then so be it. Because this one person I've spoken to, who's in the States, by the way, some of the stuff she's told me, I'm like, whoa, that's Mm -hmm. like a Netflix documentary, Mm -hmm. right? And so because of what you do, it would be amazing if you could find these people. I'm sure that they'll come to you like this and interview them and figure out what really happened because no one really knows what happened. There's loads of speculation. Oh, this happened. I only was brought in for the DEI strategy. I kind of knew that before, you know, yeah. all this other stuff. So I would love you to, to do that. And if I can offer any support through Diversity Economics Institute, then I will. Um, 
I mean, I could I could talk to you for hours, by the way, and I and uh, I'm so grateful that you've both come onto the show. It, it was it was such an enlightening conversation for me. I know uh, there's so much more to discuss in terms of the approaches and the stories within, but of course, people should go buy the book. That's the whole point, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will encourage that. Where can people go go find you? Uh, the book is fine. We can Google it. But where do we find each of you? Any websites or anything you can tell us about? I am at Dr. Dr. Tina Opie, D-R-T-I-N-A-O-P-I-E, yeah. uh, across all social media. And drtinaopie.com is my website. Beth? Easy. I'm Beth A. Livingston. Um, Livingston without the E, so not Dr. Livingstone, I presume. It's Dr. Livingston, I presume, yeah. um, on all, all social media sites and my website, bethalivingston.com as well. And yeah, we are continuing to do all of the things in terms of promoting this book, but also really starting to dig into, like you said, we had to start with stories Mm -hmm. that could appeal to kind of a common denominator. But as we go out in the world and talk about this, we hear so many more personal stories, like the ones that you've shared with us today. And I think that has to be part of, of our next steps is really hearing from people who use shared sisterhood, who need shared sisterhood, who, you know, want more about shared sisterhood yeah yeah, yeah and if your listeners have experiences or yeah. i mean we would love to follow up with Share. you because we actually yeah. i mean you're one of the first to hear this we just hired someone who's going to be helping us get the word out about shared sisterhood okay so we will be starting i don't know some more. website or something we're going to be trying to collect these stories because there are a lot out there hmm. um and people are the story of beth and i is resonating with a lot of folks so we want to make sure we get this movement started or yeah. continued. Yeah, and I would love to collaborate because we are actually collecting, we're building repositories of stories, facts, quotes, and books on yeah. the Atlantic Economics Institute, totally free. So I'd love to collaborate with you on that because without the stories, frankly, even the most, you know, the most ardent skeptic, you know, super racist skeptic or whatever, is is somehow moldable a little bit with a compelling story. That's the power yeah. of the movie. That's the power of film as well, right? Yeah. So yeah. Narrative is important. Yeah. So we're, we're on the same page. So selfishly, before I go, uh, each of you, Tina, maybe you start, how was the experience of the last 60 plus minutes? How have you found the, the, the podcast and the episode? Some feedback would be great so we can get better. And then of course, Beth to you as well. So I, I mean, I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed speaking with you. And I mean, Beth and I. We talk all we, the time. We talk all the time. We have, uh, I'm getting a little bit of a lag. Let me close. Am I freezing? No, you can. I can see you a little bit slow, but I can see you. Okay. So, no, I enjoyed it. I mean, I'm, what I'll do is I'll reflect a little bit more in terms of what worked well, what would be even better. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't talk about collective action, so that might have been good. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I think I love the free flow of the conversation. I liked how we brought in the global if we're on again, you can push even harder. Mm-hmm. I like being pushed. Mm-hmm. If you can't tell, I will push back. <laughs> Always. Love it. Yeah. No, I, I love that too. I love that. And you know what I liked off about this is I like the stories that you brought, um, the connections yeah. that you were making, because I mm-hmm. think that allows us, we often are asked to talk about our book 
right? From people who maybe perhaps haven't read it yet, mm. right? And I think this <laughs> this was this yet. I like the yet, right? Mm. Um, but I think it is nice to hear your stories and how you're starting to make those connections because they help us to make further connections a, mm. as we go on. So I really like yeah. that. Um, and I guess the thing that I would like to change is just give it just more time. Let's just talk for more hours. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think, I think it's, um, you know, it's such an important subject. It's not like, a, you know, it's not some newsreel that we have to do. I mean, it's a discussion. It happens yeah. to be online, but we're here to try and address some problems. We're not going to be going to be able to change people in their minds yeah. thinking if we're not able to discuss. I mean, I've learned loads. I'm going to take this back to my community and say I had this discussion. I mean, it's a privilege for me. I do this four times a month. It's a privilege for me because my brain is uh, it's like my, you know, my steroid MBA constantly because I'm learning yeah. from some of the best minds in the world. So um, but yeah, thank you so much, both of you. Thank a real you. honor, pleasure. I'll be in touch. I'm going to make some connections on email. To, yeah, Darcy, please. Um, to Darcy, you will love meeting her and she'll love meeting you and uh, look after yourself, be well. And um, I look forward to seeing you and staying in touch. And if possible, I'm going to buy a book and send it to one of you and I can get a signed copy because I like yeah. that as for my children as a memoir. They probably will never use books, but you know, <laughs> when I'm not around one day, they'll be like, oh. No, they'll be, they'll be vintage. Off, they'll be vintage. That's the thing, right? Like. <laughs> You know, exactly. vintage well, will always be a thing. It's yeah, just, totally. you know. <laughs> totally. So listen, thank you so much. My, my, my great thanks to you and look after yourself and we'll see you, we'll see you soon. Be well. Thank Thanks. you so much, Ab. Nice to meet you. Bye. Bye. You too. Bye.